Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to a regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar? I'm Bob Goody. And I'm Farah Fight. Farah, I saw a statistic the other day that almost 20 people are abused every minute in this country by an intimate partner. Which unfortunately works out to more than 10 million people a year. And those are just the reported instances. The figures come from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Domestic violence makes headlines when it involves celebrities. But it is more likely that everybody knows someone who has been a victim or an abuser. And the Me Too movement has helped put a spotlight on this issue. So we have invited two lawyers to discuss one of the most important legal tools available to survivors of domestic violence, which is an order of protection. Kelly Martinez is the legal director of the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. And Katie Westling is the managing attorney for the Crime Victim Center in St. Louis. So we wanted to start off with the basics. What is an order of protection and is it the same thing as a restraining order? So, Farah, that's a great question. And, you know, as I begin here, just to let you know and for our listeners to know, we, we understand that as we're talking today, we are sort of speaking in language that assumes the person who has filed for the order of protection is the victim of the abuse. That is not always the case. There are times when litigation abuse is a factor and the person being filed against is actually the victim of abuse. But we just want to sort of set that expectation as we're talking today that when we talk about the person who filed the petition and refer to a petitioner, that we're talking about the person we're assuming is the victim. With that understanding, so an order of protection is a particular subset of the larger group of what restraining orders are. People think of restraining orders and they think of, you know, things like the people getting restraining orders to keep protesters away from the front of their business, that kind of thing. There are those kind of restraining orders, uh, but in the Missouri statutes, there are specific type of restraining order, which is called an order of protection. And that is specifically designed to help people who are in intimate partner violence relationships are being stalked or who have been sexually assaulted. Is there a level of abuse that has to be reached before an order of protection can be granted? Unfortunately, the law is a bit retroactive, so it's always a little easier in court if something has happened already. But the threat of harm is enough to petition and to request this assistance. So if someone is is afraid, we don't want to deter them from trying to seek help. And you can file for order of protection. Some cases, others can file for order of protection. But who normally is the ideal client for order of protection? So with adult orders of protection, Chapter 455 of the revised statutes of Missouri sets out certain parameters that need to be met. So one is that to file for an adult order of protection, a person needs to be 17 or older. So adult in different areas of law is different what age qualifies. But for this purpose, 17 or older is considered an adult. So that's the first threshold. The second is that there are certain relationship statuses that need to exist between the two parties. And these are both past and present forms. It can be someone that the petitioner is married to or was married to, lived with, has lived with, has a child in common with, in a dating relationship with. That is a helpful one for a lot of younger adults who, college students, for example, who don't fit the other criteria. There are, if you're related by blood or marriage, that works. The example I always give is, 
I could file one against my father-in-law, who's a lovely man. I would never need to do that. But I'm related to him through marriage to my husband, who is then related to his father by blood. So those relationships are the typical ones that we see. Kelly, did I miss any as I was going through that? No, you mentioned also that they could be an order of protection can be filed, someone stalking you, or if you've been sexually assaulted by someone and you don't have to have any of those other types of relationships. Does it cost anything to file for order of protection? No, fair. There's no cost assessed to the petitioner, which is the person filing for the order of protection. The person who the order of protection is filed against is called the respondent. And does that person pay something, the respondent? Who pays for this service? Well, actually, court costs could be assessed against the respondent as the case goes on. So that's a really good question. Who decides the level of abuse that generates an order of protection? If, I, if I'm simply insulting someone or if I'm threatening someone, at what point does somebody say, okay, this is excessive and therefore the order needs to be issued? Well, under the statute, it's actually, you find the order protection law under chapter 455, in the Missouri revised statutes, and they, they list the types of abuse that can warrant this, Bob. And it's obviously the judge's discretion to determine to make this finding of abuse was enough to order an order of protection. So it really would depend. Every case is different, and a judge is going to look at each case differently to determine if it rises to that level. Now, one thing we can say is that courts are typically looking for harm of some sort to occur. So, you know, sometimes people are in a situation where it's a bad breakup in the sense that it's annoying. They don't want to deal with this person anymore, but there's no real fear involved. Kind of an underlying question the judge is always kind of looking for in the evidence that's presented is, is there that fear, that real fear that some, someone will be hurt? What in your experience do you find in terms of the person who seeks an order of protection? How hard is it for them to admit that they need to apply for one and then find somebody who will file for them? There are a lot of people who get to the order of protection after a lot of, of work has been done talking with advocates, counselors, therapists. You know, the legal system is generally not the first thing someone turns to unless the incident was so incredibly bad that the police are involved right away. So there has generally been some emotional work done to determine that it's time to go do this. Now, the good thing about finding someone to file one for them, as you asked, is that you don't have to do that because this is one of the very few times in the law where the courts have forms made up for people. And if someone goes to the courthouse and needs to file a petition, they do not need a lawyer to help them do this. It is a fill in the blank form that they can do with the assistance of the clerks who are mandated to at least explain the paperwork to them. Are there ever instances where a lawyer might be appointed to help in an order of protection case? Or is it purely pro se in that you can go in, as you said, and complete the paperwork with just the information provided by the clerk. Fair, unless you are a, for instance, a guardian ad litem, and a guardian ad litem, sometimes called GAL, is an attorney who's appointed to represent children's best interests, like if there's child abuse or neglect alleged in a child order of protection or an adult order of protection, and a guardian ad litem would be appointed. But as far as for the adult parties, the court does not appoint 
any kind of an attorney for them, no. But there are many, many nonprofit organizations such as Legal Aid and Legal Services, Katie's organization, that provide free representation in orders of protection. What do you say to those who are in fear but think, ah, order protection is just a piece of paper. How is that going to protect me? Well, it's absolutely not just a piece of paper. It's kind of what I call a legal unicorn because it's very interesting because it's a civil order that has criminal remedies. And so it's it definitely has these type of protections that are far from just a piece of paper, for sure. If I get a piece of paper, the, the piece of paper, the legal protections, does anything come with that? Do I get a police officer sitting outside my house, for example? <laughs> How is that really protecting me? Here's the way I like to explain that, is that it's important to think of it as this is a tool. It's a tool that does certain things. Is it a tool that actually somehow magically prevents someone from trying to hurt you? No, it's not that kind of a tool. It is a tool that, while it may not have a police officer sitting outside your door, it does mean that if you call the police and say, I have an order of protection, that automatically makes it a priority call. So it will affect police response. It is a tool that can be very effective among the class of people where the abuser is someone who is not someone who thinks of themselves as a criminal, right? So you get professionals, you know, I've been in cases where you know, the respondents, an ER doctor, something like that, not someone that people think is your typical abuser. And they don't want any problems. They don't want to go to jail. So if you have this order and they know that if you call the police, they run some risk here, um, it can be very effective in those situations. So it's really a matter of thinking about your individual situation, the problem you are trying to solve, and is this a tool that, that will help with the problem you're trying to solve? I would guess that many instances of abuse happen not during normal business hours. So nights and weekends. When can a person file for order of protection? Do they have to wait for those, you know, Monday through Friday court business hours to go to the clerk's office to do it? Or is there a is there a remedy for those after hours scenarios? In this statute, it does provide for situations like that because we know abuse as you said doesn't just happen nine to five if you can get it you know anytime that the court is open and then after like holidays um, weekends after hours there needs to be policies in place for survivors to get orders of protection now you can find that sometimes on the court website so you can go to the court's website and find out their policy for after hours orders or protection you can call advocacy programs around the state there's advocates all over the state thousands of advocates who can also provide that information and then they can also call like, the sheriff's office or law enforcement to find out policies because many times like for instance after hours you can file for an order of protection at a sheriff's office that was going to be my question. Could I go to the police department? When you file that, that petition, can the police call up somebody who's named in it and say, hey, George or Mary, we've got a request for an order of protection here. You better watch yourself. Is that is that a process? Not quite. The police, if they do it at the police station or the sheriff's department, they're going to contact a court clerk who is on call, who's going to contact a judge who's on call, who's going to determine if they're going to grant, you know, an immediate protective order or if they're simply going to grant a court date. 
But what is essential to this process, because our legal system requires notice and due process to the other side, is that the person they filed against is entitled to be served with this paperwork telling them someone has filed a case against you. These are the allegations they have made. This is when you can come to court and defend yourself. And so if the police just call someone and tell them that someone has filed against them, that doesn't count as official service. They need to be served and an officer has to say, I put this paperwork in that person's hand. They aren't calling them, but the sheriff's office is serving these papers as quickly as possible. It is supposed to be done as quickly as they can get to it. And once that service has occurred and the other side is on notice, at that point, the police can then begin to enforce the provisions that may say to stay away from this person. And, and sometimes they do make those phone calls after service has occurred to tell someone we know what's going on here and you're facing some criminal penalties, but it's not service. I would guess that the alleged abuser could possibly get pretty angry when that order of protection is served. Is there any notice or protection given to the person who filed the order of protection so that they can at least know when things might hit the fan? You are right. We prepare people if we get the chance ahead of time to to do some safety planning around that service issue because it, it is a very dangerous time in, in many of these cases. There is no real automatic notification of the victims. They can find this out by looking on VineLink. They can find this out sometimes by looking on CaseNet. Those are, CaseNet is our Missouri cases that shows, you know, if cases that have been filed in the courts. VineLink is a victim notification system that shows many different things about the criminal justice system. I would imagine in smaller communities, word might get around quicker than it does in a larger community. Um, but no victim should ever assume they will be notified. They, they sort of have to find out by maybe calling the sheriff themselves. Yes, and there is the Mules, which is a system in Missouri that's an automatic system that we have in place that also notifies survivors of what's going on. And it also has, like, for instance, if there's a custody order made in an order of protection, it goes into that notification system. So law enforcement will know that a custody order was in place in the order of protection. But are these public documents? Is this the kind of thing that uh, gets a list of these things that gets published in newspapers sometimes, especially small towns that have newspapers that publish that sort of stuff? They aren't public right off the bat. There's kind of a process they go through. So when someone files the petition, if the case, it's a court case, it's got a case number, and CaseNet, if you know the case number, you will be able to find it after someone files but you won't be able to find it by searching the names of the parties simply at the point of filing. And that's because the respondent has not yet had a chance to defend themselves before people run around starting to assume they're an abuser, start posting screenshots, you know, the sorts of things that happen nowadays. We want someone to have their chance to defend themselves. Now, after a court does a hearing, and if the court does grant an order of protection after the respondent has had the chance to defend themselves, at that point in time, someone can find the case by looking up the respondent's name. But the petitioner's name is always kept confidential. If I'm a family member and I have children and I'm planning to file an order of protection for myself, the adult, 
Do you recommend filing an order of protection for your children at the same time? Farah, if you're saying that there's also abuse to the children, then you would you would file for a child order of protection also. But in the adult order of protection, if you're filing for yourself that you are the petitioner, you can add your children on that adult order to get things like, and we can probably talk a little bit more about that too, is you can get some relief like custody and visitation and child support. You can ask for that in your petition. What happens if somebody continues to if not personally, physically abuse someone, but keep in touch with them through social media. Uh, keep commenting or commenting about them or threatening them directly through social media. Does this cover that? And is there a way to, uh, to police that issue? Oh, absolutely. The orders of protection can, and for the most part, if they're granted, they, they generally do include a provision that bars communication. And communication can be through third parties, can be through messaging apps. You know, sometimes the challenge in court comes into proving that this particular message was actually sent by the person who is the respondent, because as we know, people can set up a gazillion fake profiles on Facebook with many different names. So there's a lot of opportunity, unfortunately, for people to do bad things the technology has created. But if we can convince the judge that the person who's the respondent to this order has violated it in that way, yes, that can actually result in criminal charges and a, a criminal conviction. Kelly, let's revisit what you were just saying in that you can actually just complete one order of protection form that adds your children to it. And then you noted that you could ask for other things in it. Take us down that line and, and share the multitude of pieces that are available in order protection that I know myself, I had no idea. And I'm betting our average listener had no idea either. Yes, of course. And so there's a process for getting um, an order of protection. And when you first go to court to file for an order of protection, you're going to ask for an ex parte. And an ex parte just means that the judge is looking at one side of it. It's only what the petitioner wrote in their petition. And they're going to determine if they're going to give you this temporary order that's called an ex parte. And in that, kind of what Katie touched on, there can be orders that the respondent does not threaten to commit domestic violence or commit domestic violence, molesting, stalking, sexual assault, or disturbing the peace of the petitioner. It can say you, they can't enter the premises of the dwelling unit of the petitioner there can be an order of temporary custody of minor children, temporary order of pets when it's appropriate. And as Katie mentioned, it's kind of a cornerstone too, is not communicate with the petitioner in any manner through any medium. And then after that, in this process, is that say the, the ex parte order is granted, and then later there will be a hearing for a full order. And as Katie touched on, the respondent has to be served. And so they have to be served at least three days before they have this the full order hearing. And in this full order, if it's granted, all those things that I mentioned and also a few other things, such as, as I mentioned too, the custody of the minor children, if a custody order has not been made or pending, and we can kind of clarify that just a little bit with you in a bit, but visitation of children, child support, a judge can order maintenance, which is some people think of alimony, which is really like spousal support. 
and all of these other financial things like the respondent might make rent or mortgage pay payments on a particular dwelling unit, maybe temporary possession of personal property. Like I use, like to use something like maybe car, car keys, house keys. I always think of too, garage door opener. You know, you can be creative with these type of things. Really think of some things that you want possession of. Maybe a favorite picture that you have that you think maybe the other person might destroy. You can even ask the court to prohibit the other person from destroying your property or transferring it, giving it away, selling it. The court can also order the respondent to participate in batter's intervention programs or counseling programs or substance abuse treatment programs. They can order them to pay court costs, medical treatment fees, housing fees, and something new in 2021, which excited about is that the court can award possession and care of a pet. We all, I think on this call are pet lovers, right? Can award possession of a pet along with any money necessary to cover medical costs of any abuse that may be that they perpetrated on the, on the pet. Finally, they can do, it's kind of interesting, they can even sever a contract in a wireless service for cell phones. And then we always want to point out too, that even though all of this relief is a possibility. It's under the discretion of a judge if they're going to award it. But a judge can also make any orders necessary that the court deems necessary to ensure the petitioner's safety. So that's a lot of relief. You know, when we talked about earlier, is it just a piece of paper? Absolutely not. So we've just gone over a number of the options available to someone who's filling out an orders of protection request form. One thing that we haven't discussed yet, though, are weapons and or guns. Is there a checkbox on the form that allows me to, you know, request a judge to remove weapons or a gun from the respondent if, if I'm fearful for my life? Well, yes, you can ask a judge to remove firearms. What we have is an interesting situation here where federal law and state law both say something about this. So we have the Violence Against Women Act where the federal law says that if a judge believes after hearing the evidence that the petitioner has met their burden for proving that the person should not have firearms while this order is in place, there is a federal law that allows the judge to then uh, check a box on the full order of protection form saying no firearms. Now, Missouri recently passed a law saying that Missouri is not going to enforce federal firearm laws. And so that has made this particular provision less helpful than it could have been and was before, unfortunately. However, Missouri judges with their authority under Missouri law and their ability to enter provisions within this court order that they create on their own, can still write in a provision in the order of protection that says the respondent shall not possess firearms while this order is in place. And while it may not be enforceable under that federal statute any longer, it is still certainly enforceable by the Missouri judge through that contempt process that we've sort of touched on throughout this conversation, where you can go back to the judge who issued the order and say that the person is not following it and that the circuit court judge can enforce their order through the mechanisms available to them. 
All right. So it sounds like there's still a mechanism through the law to do this, but that we might have to come back here a few months or a few years from now and touch base on where the the conflicting federal and state law ended up. Yeah, it's a real shame because federal penalties sometimes catch people's attention a little more than state penalties do. You know, the having a federal prosecution and a federal charge and conviction against you, you know, is a step above. And so it's really a shame that Missouri has taken that option away from us, but we still go forward with what we have. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. For victims of domestic violence and for family law attorneys under the age of 70, it's hard to imagine a world without orders of protection under Missouri's Adult Abuse Act. But their existence spans only the last 40 years. For me personally, it's memorable because the Missouri Supreme Court decision upholding the constitutionality of the adult abuse law was the first case in which I submitted a brief in our state Supreme Court. An amicus curiae brief. Amicus curiae means friend of the court, and the brief, in a friendly way, urged the court to uphold the law, which was enacted to protect victims of domestic abuse and violence. As I recall, the friend of the court briefs, including ours, brought to the court's attention the very real problem of violence among those in the same households, domestic partners, spouses. When police are called to domestic disputes, there often was confusion as to what the police should do and who was the aggressor to say nothing of the threats to the safety of the officers themselves. The case started shortly after the legislature enacted the 1980 Adult Abuse Act when Denise Williams filed a petition for an order of protection in the circuit court of Jackson County in Kansas City. She alleged that on November 13, 1980, and on numerous previous occasions, Her estranged husband, who was a former Golden Gloves boxer, much larger and stronger than she, quote, intentionally, knowingly, and willfully beat her, causing serious physical injury, requiring Ms. Williams to be hospitalized for 12 days. The circuit court judge found that Ms. Williams certainly qualified for an order of protection under the new law, but the judge said the law itself was unconstitutional. The Kansas City judge cited a technical fault he found in the bill that became the Adult Abuse Act. The Supreme Court did not agree with him and said the law was, in fact, properly enacted. But the main issue was that the circuit judge said the law's provision for a one-sided order, which lawyers call an ex parte order, violated the husband's right to due process of law because the defendant for up to 15 days can be ordered out of his home without a hearing and to provide child support. Ex parte is a Latin phrase for a proceeding in which only one side is present or represented. The law provides for this husband to get a hearing, but because of the urgent need for protection, the hearing does not occur until after the temporary order keeps him out of the home and subject to support orders for up to 15 days. The Supreme Court opinion holding that the law is valid cited enactments in the 1970s in other states to protect victims of domestic abuse. Legislatures noted the demand for new laws going beyond traditional domestic relations laws that were rooted in dissolution of marriage and in providing for child custody and support. In recent decades, many domestic relations situations do not involve traditional marriage or even intimate partnerships, so the protections in marriage law do not help those who are not married to each other. The Missouri Supreme Court in its 1982 decision noted that the developments in society that showed the need for the new adult abuse laws and put family relations in the focus of the court's decision. The court said, quote, studies have shown that the victim of adult abuse is usually a woman. In a large percentage of families, the court noted, the children have been present when the abuse occurred. 
In one study cited by the court, 54% of the battered women interviewed reported that their husbands had committed acts of violence against their children as well as against the other parent. Even if the child is not physically injured, the court said, he or she will likely suffer emotional trauma from witnessing violence between his parents. Abuse appears to be perpetuated through the generations. An individual who grows up in a home where violence occurs is more likely either to abuse others as an adult or to be a victim of abuse. Adult abuse, the court said, is therefore a problem affecting not only the adult members of a household, but also the children. The most compelling reason for an abused woman to remain in the home subject to more abuse is her financial dependency, the court opined. This is particularly true for women with children. The orders pertaining to child custody, support, and maintenance are all fairly related to and serve the same basic purpose of aiding victims of domestic violence and preventing future incidents of adult abuse. In the decades following the 1982 decision in Denise Williams's case, the legislature has tweaked the law to expand its protections. Most recently in 2021, the law allowed for permanent orders of protection for 10 years and longer in extreme cases and now includes protection for pets as well as people. Protective orders may be renewed by the victim and under the new law, the enhanced protective orders can be renewed for life if needed. Federal protections have been added over the years, most notably a federal law that forbids someone who has had a full order of protection entered against him from possessing a gun. In recent years, Missouri courts have issued more than 50,000 orders of protection each year. The discussion you are hearing today is important to tens of thousands of Missourians every year, an important change in our protective laws and a relatively recent legal development as well. This is Mike Wolf, your friend of the court. Legal ease. Well, it sounds to me like there's almost no limit to what a judge can do when there's a request for a protective order. Well, there are limits <laughs> and we run into them frequently. And yeah. certainly, you know, this is all discretionary for the most part. So the limits come in when the judge hears the facts and determines how far they are willing to go with certain things. But other limits are certainly, as Kelly mentioned and said, we'd kind of get back to, you know, if there are other court orders out there. An order of protection, because of the nature of it coming up so quickly, if someone files a petition, there's going to be a hearing by law within 15 days. Court cases take a long time in real life, normal world, you know, the vast majority of cases. This, because of the safety issues, they've made this process much quicker. But the trade-off is you don't have a whole lot of time to prepare. You don't necessarily do what we call discovery with finding witnesses and getting records and all sorts of things like that. So because this order is issued with the public policy of keeping people safe in mind, the trade-off is that it's a little quicker, it's a little less intensive of a process in terms of the amount of evidence you can present. And so because of that, if there are prior court orders out there, judges cannot change those orders in the process of an order of protection. And what I mean by that is if someone is filing against their ex-spouse, for example, and in the divorce, the ex-spouse was given the marital home. So they're not married anymore. The ex-spouse had the marital home. They kind of got back together, see if they could work things out, for example, and the victim moved back in, the survivor. They aren't gonna get to own that home again if divorce already gave it to the other person. You know, there are also some quirks to that example, I realized as I was saying, but the point is that if another court has already made orders about possessions, about child custody, about finances, the order of protection is not the way to change those. The order of protection is simply there to make people safe. If I'm the target of an order of protection, 
it doesn't sound to me like I have a whole lot of time to get a lawyer and get familiar with everything and be properly represented in court under the, under what we've been talking about here. Is that a problem? As a target, you mean the person that was filed against yeah, yeah, the respondent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there's not a lot of time. Courts do yeah. often grant extended, they extend the time. They will continue the cases if the respondent comes in and says, I need more time. They will often do that. Now, because of the way the process is set up, there is often a that temporary ex parte order is in place and they will keep that in place so that the person who filed does have at least the minimum protection in the meantime. Respondents do get a fair amount of leeway if they want more time. They, they will often get it if they need that. Yes, and as Katie mentioned, each party is probably is, is normally allowed one continuance at least to be able to prepare for this. Can you amend your order of protection? Because in everything that you described that could be outlined or requested for the judge to consider as part of the order of protection, you know, if I was in a crisis moment, I probably wouldn't be thinking about all those additional prize possession. I'd probably be thinking about my pet. <laughs> or your child. But beyond that, just physical safety, I probably wouldn't be thinking about the other things right away. So is there a way to kind of amend it and add on before those formal hearings would take place? It's not easy, um, but it can be done. You know, what I would want people to take away from this. So remember, the thing is, they don't have to come up with it on their own. This is a fill in the blank form, which is helpful because people don't have to know what they can ask for. It's kind of put out there for them. And there are check boxes. What I generally as kind of a blanket piece of advice to people say is if you're not sure, just check off every single box on that form. And if you check off a box that says you want custody of the kids and you don't have kids, well, you know, someone might smile faintly when they read it, but it's not going to do you any harm, right? But if you don't check off the box, that can cause trouble later on. Again, going back to those notions of due process and notice to the other side of what the issues are going to be when we get to court. So the easiest way to address that is to simply say, just check off every box and it'll sort itself out. But if someone does not, and they realize that they wanted to, they can request permission from the court to amend the petition because these things come up so fast and the respondents are sometimes ordered out of their home while the, the case is pending. The petitioner doesn't get quite as much leeway about extra time, especially for something like that, as I would say a respondent does, because the petitioner is the one who started the case and kind of got it moving and is sort of expected to be ready to go. I think that's a great answer, Katie. And I do. I love that tip is that, you know, you do want to check all the boxes now, your court may be a court that just doesn't routinely award any of these things, but if these are things that you need and they're going to help you and your children's safety, then yes, absolutely check those boxes. And something, too, that you haven't asked, but I, I'm kind of anticipating maybe a follow-up yeah. question. Can you modify an order of protection? And the answer to where that was at it, where, yes, you absolutely can modify an order of protection, and there's forms available to do just that. Let's say there was an order made, like, for instance, there was supervised visitation made. And then during that supervised visitation, more abuse was committed. And you want to go back into court and say that you want to modify this order to have no visitation at all. You are allowed to do that. 
Here's an interesting quirk with that. The law, as Kelly mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of changes to it that are going into effect here in 2021. And one of those changes is that the law now says that if a judge made a specific finding of serious danger in this case, and we can talk about that more also as well, but if the judge made this kind of finding, this new statute does say that you can't modify an order for a couple of years. For two years. It, I mean, it says two years. How that's going to play out in courtrooms and in reality, we don't know yet because this is a new law and we haven't actually seen how that's actually going to be interpreted. But the strict language of the statute does say if a judge made this specific type of finding, then it can't be modified for a couple of years, barring some very specific circumstances. And so that's going to be a little quirk that all of us are going to have to get used to, and that's going to have to play itself out through the court system. I'm so glad that you brought that up. This might be a good time to talk about that new law that is about the duration of orders of protection. That was going to be my next question. How, how long does an order of protection last? Well, the initial order lasts from 180 days to a year, but if the judge makes a specific finding of particular danger to the petitioner, then it can be two years to 10 years. But then after that initial order, there's steps to this, that there can also be a renewal of the order. And during the renewal period with this with this new law under here in 2021, is that the judge could determine that that danger is so significant and makes a finding of that. And then there's details in the law that, that gives guidance to a judge when determining this kind of danger. They could actually make that subsequent order actually up to the lifetime of a respondent. Is there a definition in this new law of what serious danger is? There's a list. That guidance is in the statute. And then as Katie pointed out, time will tell and, you know, we'll have case law that interprets this. But there is a list of it's kind of guidance for the judge to determine that. Is there a hearing held when an order runs out? Is there another hearing held to see if anybody wants to extend it? Is that automatically called or what's, what's happening? That can kind of go a couple different ways. If the court at the time of the entering the initial order, uh, they do have an option to automatically renew it if they check that particular box. Now that's, I know around the state, some places just don't ever do that. Some places do it routinely. It's all sort of circuit by circuit, judge by judge at that point. But there is that one option for an automatic renewal if the judge checks that box. Now, if the judge does not indicate that this will automatically renew, then a person can always come back in and make a motion to renew it. But it puts that burden to move that forward back on the petitioner and the survivor. Now, I will say if the judge automatically puts that order in about an automatic renewal, the respondent always has the option to file a request for a hearing before the automatic renewal goes into place. So, you know, even an automatic renewal is not necessarily automatic if the person who's being restrained from certain behaviors wants to come back into the judge, maybe say, look, I went through this counseling program you sent me to. Maybe I've moved out of state. I'm not even here anymore. There have been no problems. I don't want this order on my record anymore. They have the chance to come in and say that if they want to. But it's kind of a two-prong answer to that question. I wanted to go back to a bit for Bob's question, you know, for the hearing to determine if the respondent 
is a serious danger to the petitioner. As I said, it is listed in the statute, but just to give you all some idea of what a judge is going to look at is like the weight of the evidence, the respondent's history of inflicting injury, the respondent's history of stalking. You know, stalking is a really, it's, it's high when you're looking at lethality assessment. The respondent's criminal record, whether the respondent has been found guilty of a dangerous felony, or maybe they violated terms of their probation. So these are the type of things that a judge would look at to determine if the respondent is a serious danger to the petitioner. Do judges very often refuse to issue orders of protection? Not very often, necessarily, at least in the cases where these intimate partner situations are going on. Now, there is misuse of this system, just like there is with anything, where we have cases which show up where, you know, landlords are trying to evict a tenant using an order of protection, or two neighbors are fighting over their property boundary and they try to get an order of protection. And in those cases, judges are not as likely to do this. But in cases where the intimate partner relationship or sexual assault or stalking, you know, if the evidence supports that, our burden is really pretty low. We only have to prove this by the preponderance of the evidence, which means that kind of, if the judge kind of 51% believes there's a problem here, they're going to grant the order. It's not a criminal case where we have to get to beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the lowest burden that we have in court cases. And so I would say a lot of judges probably think about whether they're going to err on the side of caution in this. Now they will. I mean, they certainly deny them at times if they really don't think that they're necessary. I I mean, it's not that just that you walk in and you get one. No one should assume that just because they file for one of these that they're going to walk out with what they've asked for. But the standard's pretty low for getting one. So Kelly, what do you think about that question? I agree with you. I think because it's more likely than not, that's the standard. And so I don't believe, you know, we talked about all the list of relief that a judge may order. And that's where, Bob, there are many, as I mentioned before, many judges are not willing to do, to grant all of that relief. But as far as getting the order of protection, the standard is the lowest for them to do that. If I have order of protection against me, can I appeal it to someone? You absolutely can, just like with any with any court judgment. Yes, absolutely. And it's been done many times and I've participated in quite a few of them myself. Yeah, on both sides, you can appeal if it's denied and you feel like you should have gotten it and respondents appeal when they feel like it shouldn't have been issued. So there's there's a, a, a fair amount of case law. Yeah. Now who, who do they appeal to? Well, whatever the local court of appeals is for, for there, there are three courts of appeals in the state of Missouri. So depending on what circuit they're in, you know, Eastern, Western, Southern, it, that's the first step. Now, there's also, this gets a little lawyer technical, you know, you can always ask the judge who originally heard it to uh, you file a motion for a new trial and try it again. But if we're talking about actual appeals, it's going to be whichever circuit you're in and which court gets it. Does that start to get expensive? We've talked about OPs as being fairly low cost things, Mm -hmm. but if you appeal, that's when you start to have to hire lawyers and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, you had highlighted that there are actually criminal penalties that are tied to the order of protection. So can you highlight what some of the things are that a respondent would face if they violated their order of protection? 
I'd like to also point out that all of the provisions in an order of protection are enforceable. It's just that some are enforceable through a contempt action. They go back to civil court. Like, for instance, you know how I mentioned child support. They could possibly get ordered, you know, child support. And that, if they don't, if the respondent wouldn't pay it, then the petitioner could bring a contempt action in circuit court. So they're enforceable there. Some of the provisions, I just want to highlight um, what would be criminal violations. And they, they're in regard to domestic violence, stalking, sexual assault, child custody. If there's a violation in the order for child custody, any communication initiated by the respondent or entrance upon the premises of the petitioner's house, their school, their place of employment, or if they were told, if the respondent was told to be a certain distance away from the petitioner or a child of the petitioner, these are all criminally enforced and have criminal penalties. Now, with criminal penalties, this means jail time, possibly, right? They, or they could be on, on probation. So it's after, like, after a full order of protection has been entered. Well, actually, even ex, ex parte orders can, can also be enforced and have criminal penalties. There's the statute that gives the, the level of criminal penalties for violation of orders of protection. It's interesting, too. I just want to talk about that custody just a little bit. When a person against whom an order of protection has been entered fails to surrender custody of minor children to the person to whom the custody was granted, then law enforcement shall arrest that person and give the children back to the care and custody of the party to whom they've been awarded. That's very, very interesting, and that's part of the order of protection law. Uh, well, I want to ask about something we touched on very briefly, abuse in the filing of orders of protection. So if somebody files one for revenge, for example, or other motives like that, uh, how's that handled by the judge? And what happens if somebody, if the judge determines that you're just doing this to get back at somebody and nothing's really happening here? Do you see that very often? You know, more and more, you know, the thing is, as we get information out to people and are trying to help survivors, you know, that information's in the public arena now. And so everyone hears it. Really, all that happens is the judge denies the order. I mean, that's really all they can do. It's just not let it go forward. Unfortunately, sometimes what happens is that the, the survivor goes down and files and then the respondent comes down and files their own. And this is what we call cross petitions then. And then when that happens, the courts tend to hear those petitions in the same hearing. And there is unfortunately sometimes some intended or unintended pressure to just get both sides to say, let we'll leave each other alone and like just enter an order against both sides. That's why we want survivors to have attorneys when they can to try to help them if that turns into what's happening here. So there, there can be that unfortunate consequence if both parties file and the easiest route sometimes is just to say, I'm going to order you both to leave each other alone. That's not the right outcome, certainly, as, as Kelly and I would see it. This is not just a harmless, well, we just told them to leave each other alone, and they're going to leave each other alone, and that should solve the problem. What the court system has just done, if they let an order be issued against someone who's really the victim, is they have just reinforced everything that the abuser always told them, which is no one's going to believe you, you're going to get in trouble, no one's going to help you. And it really, really makes it very difficult to ever get that survivor to trust in a system again, because everything they were told would happen 
happened. You know, I've spoken to people who 10 years ago were told by a police officer, if we have to come back out here again tonight, we're going to just arrest both of you and put the kids in foster care. And so for 10 years, the abuse was endured because the response was unfortunately just don't bother us, basically. And I, I can't think of a nice way to say that. I don't think that most judges intend to give that message. I think they really think that they are just telling everyone, leave each other alone and it will stop when they do that. Um, this is kind of a sensitive topic to be talking about, but, but there are times when these things do happen and it, it's really, really got repercussions beyond what I think most people think it does. Kelly, how do you feel about that question? <laughs> it's really the judge's decision to determine that, that if someone is filing, for instance, if they're neighbors and they're filing for an order of protection and they, they don't meet the qualifications for an order. If they're just saying, I'm, I'm just really angry at you. I'm just going to file this order of protection. I'm going to use the, you know, the, the legal system to, to do something like that. It's up to a judge to determine that that is not a, an appropriate order of protection and, and would not grant it. I've heard of an order of protection between neighbors over a fence dispute where two cows were listed as pets under the order of protection. I don't think that advanced, but the cows did have names. So maybe that they thought would help the case. I'm not sure. <laughs> help the request. Going back to the serious side, because we talked about the stats at the beginning, and I also mentioned that was just the number of cases reported. Because traditionally, research, I believe, shows that many people who encounter or are at the receiving end of domestic violence do not report or do not seek help, maybe instantly. What are some resources that are available other than just the form for the order of protection to help survivors escape these sometimes life-threatening situations? Well, fair. there are I love to talk about this, by the way, so thank you for asking this question. There are domestic and sexual violence programs all over the state of Missouri. We have, just as our members at the coalition, are 105 different member programs. And they're full of thousands of advocates who can help a person decide if they want to file. They can do a benefit drawback analysis on whether or not to get an order of protection. And then they can help them with that process. And then they, they can go to court with them. They can be a support system for them. They can help them navigate the court system. So if you go to the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, website, which is www.mocadsv.org. You can click on an interactive map and it can, and you can find service providers in your area. And it's so important to look at this holistically. Like, let's say someone wants to file for an order of protection and they have an attorney like Katie representing them, but they also have an advocate supporting them. And then that that's so much more support to, to help someone determine if they want to get that order of protection, if they want to go through the court process, um, maybe also make dissolution later on down the line. So yes, there's all of these resources. And the great thing about a domestic and sexual violence advocate is they can connect 
survivors with all sorts of resources like housing and counseling and all sorts of things. And so that's something to remember. And, you know, you ask if there's also resources. And I just want to point out, too, that when someone goes to, let's say someone doesn't realize that this, these things are out there and they go to a clerk in a courthouse, by law, the clerk is required to assist someone filling out that order of protection. There are more resources there. There's also. And then there's legal services and legal aid offices all around the state. And besides just having the attorneys there, there's also the legal services staff that they're added resources to. Maybe I have to ask this to the County Clerks Association sometime, but are county clerks and their employees trained to deal with people who come in and ask for these uh, this piece of paper? Yes, they are trained in what this form is, how to tell someone what each little box they're supposed to fill out means. They aren't necessarily trained in trauma response, and that's not their job. And so, you know, it's not really fair to expect them to be. But we like people to know, remember, that they're clerks and they're doing the job they're there for, and, and the emotional support is not necessarily their job. To follow up on your listing of all the amazing resources that are available throughout the state to those who might find themselves in this unfortunate situation that there is an escape from. I know safety planning is something that is commonly referred to or mentioned when it comes to leaving an abusive relationship. Can you highlight what are some of those tips for safety planning and where people can find more on that resource as well? So when we talk about safety planning, we're really getting into the nitty gritty of where are the places in your life where you know we can at least try to predict there might be some danger involved and let's plan ahead to think what you're gonna do about that. So sometimes it can be things such as if someone tells me they're worried that their abuser is going to be tracking them and figure out that they just got a new job. Okay, so what, what can we do? First of all, is there a place you can park your car so that we can make sure they don't attach a, a GPS device to it? Can you take a different route to work than what they're expecting? Can you change your shift so they don't necessarily know what time you're going to be going? You know, these little practical things that people can do without needing some system to intervene. But, you know, changing a phone number is is always touchy because it, you know, that's a big deal nowadays to change your phone number. So people don't tend to do that unless they really have to. But such things as, like I said, that changing the patterns of driving can be a really big thing sometimes. Sometimes we have to talk about, you know, people in your life who are used to being friends with both parties may or may not be safe anymore for certain conversations. It's really sad when you tell someone, I know you've had Christmas with his mom for the last 20 years, but still his mom, you know, do you necessarily want to tell her your new address if you're in hiding? You know, these kinds of things. You know, it's really just looking for where those gaps are going to be and and helping them think through it. And that's where advocates are so amazing. All these resources that you can find that Kelly just mentioned, they think of things that the rest of us aren't going to think of because <laughs> they've seen so much and they will find those gaps where we wouldn't even realize there was one there. Yeah, they're the professionals in that and they're, they're gold in these situations. Several years ago, the legislature gave the Secretary of State's office a program where it could basically be the place that somebody could send letters to a person who's under protective order and it would be forwarded to them so that whoever was looking for them couldn't find them. 
Are you familiar with that particular program the Secretary of State has? And I haven't stated it very well, but uh, could you clarify that for us? Sure, I thought you stated it really well. It's the Safe at Home Address. <laughs> safe at Home, that's right. Yes, it's the Safe at Home Address Confidentiality Program through the Missouri Secretary of State, and it protects survivors of domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, human trafficking, stalking, and other crimes where someone fears for their safety as well as the individuals residing in the same house with them. It's done by using a designated address that they have so that their location will not be found. And they, they have to file that with the Secretary of State? Is that how they handle that? Yes, they contact the Safe at Home program and they can Google that and it gives it's a great website, uh, easy to read and understand. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that maybe we haven't touched base on, but you think our listeners need to know either about orders of protection or the resources available to them if they are trying to escape the situation of domestic violence? Well, we thought maybe that we could just end on some tips. You know, we suggest to people filling out the petitions. Do you want to start with that, Katie? Yeah. So, you know, if someone is thinking they need that they want to pursue this particular tool in their part of their safety plan. So one thing is you can look online. Um, the Office of State Court Administrator has posted these petitions, these fill in the blank things we've been talking about online. So someone can look at them ahead of time and kind of think through, how am I going to phrase this instead of doing it under the stress, you know, if maybe there's a clerk waiting for them to do it. So these these can be seen ahead of time. And things that I tell people are the most important because we're giving them a whole lot of things to think about. But if they just remember these few things, one is this is not the normal intuition when telling a story. When you tell a story, you start at the beginning, right? Well, the beginning of an abusive relationship could involve a long time ago and a lot of things between here and now, then and now. And when someone's filing an order of protection, the judge needs to know why today are you here and why do I need to protect you today? So you start with the most recent thing that happened. You don't tell the story from beginning to end. You start with the end and, you know, fill in the blank forms that we've been talking about. I mean, if you could see them, there's maybe four lines. They don't give you a lot of room to write on these things. In some cases, courts will give you extra paper and some won't. So. The judge isn't going to see this person. And as we know, hearing and seeing someone can evoke responses that we're seeing what they wrote on the paper can't. And so start with what was most recent and be so specific. Do not use words like abused, threatened. Say what happened. Okay. Someone can say I was threatened and that will strike the reader one way. Someone can say I was told that I will be gutted, stuffed and hung in the closet to be brought out for use whenever needed. That's one that I didn't make that up. That was one I, I heard. And I'm sorry if that was hard for people to hear. But, you know, think about the difference in the judge reading they threatened me versus what I just said specifically they were going to do. That's what grabs the judge's attention and makes them realize I need to do something to protect this person. People ask if they can curse. If that's what the person said, write down what they said. You know, I think that's really just as general advice without knowing the person and dealing with them specifically. That is what I would want people to know. You have to tell the story in the way that convinces someone who's never met you before I really need your help and I need it today. <laughs> Kelly, what do you think? 
Absolutely. And you can put dates and times, but you need to make sure that if you put dates and times, you're absolutely certain that that is the date and time. It's okay if you're not exactly sure, just don't put that put that on there. I agree with everything Katie said. And as Katie mentioned earlier, a big tip is check those boxes. Check everything that, that you could possibly want um, the court to order for you. And also there's a part on the petition about serving the respondent and it says give some details about where you can serve them. Respondents are no actually notoriously hard to serve. And so to just really give details on that section of where law enforcement can find them to serve or if there's a special process service possibly to find that respondent, I would always suggest really, really highlight that. And one other thing, just going back to safety planning, we're talking about sometimes a survivor chooses not to put all the details on an order of protection because they think that maybe if they put that detail, that might be the one thing that enrages the respondents and puts them more in danger. So it's really part of, as they're filling out the order of protection, to really think about that safety plan that we talked about that's already in place before you start filling out that petition. We want to thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2? special production of the Missouri Bar. Our thanks to Kelly Martinez and Katie Wessling for helping us explore the issue of domestic and sexual violence today. Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. Jessica Gonzalez and her husband, were involved in divorce proceedings in 1999 in Castle Rock, Colorado. In May, Jessica obtained a restraining order preventing him from coming within 100 yards of her and their three daughters. At approximately 5 p.m. on June 22nd, Jessica's husband took the three girls from their yard. At 7.30, she called the Castle Rock Police Department. Two officers were dispatched. She informed them of the restraining order and she requested that it be enforced. Jessica wanted her daughters to be returned to their home. The officer stated there was nothing they could do and recommended that she call the police again if the children were not home by 10 p.m. At 8.30 p.m., Jessica Gonzalez talked to her husband on the phone. He told her that he had their daughters at an amusement park in Denver. She called the police again and asked them to go to the park and check on her children. The officer with whom she spoke refused and told her to wait to see if the girls were returned by 10 o'clock. When they weren't home by 10, Jessica again called the police. This time, she was told to wait until midnight. When they were not returned by midnight, she called the police once again. She went to her husband's apartment, but he was not home. She called the police yet again and was told to wait for an officer to arrive. When no officer came, she went to the police station at 12.50 a.m. and submitted a report. The officer who took the report left to go get something to eat. At 3.20 a.m., Jessica's husband arrived at the police station and opened fire with a semi-automatic handgun he had just purchased. Police fired on him and killed him. Inside the cab of his pickup truck, police found the dead bodies of the three children who had been murdered by their father. 
The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution provides that a state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Jessica Gonzalez brought suit against the city of Castle Rock, alleging a violation of the 14th Amendment. Jessica argued that she had a property interest in police enforcement of the restraining order against her husband and that the town deprived her of this property without due process when its police force so tragically failed to enforce that order. The federal district court ruled in favor of the city. The Court of Appeals reversed ruling in favor of Jessica. The city then appealed to the United States Supreme Court. In Castle Rock versus Gonzalez, a 2005 decision written by Justice Antonin Scalia, the court rejected the claim of Jessica Gonzalez. Scalia wrote, The Due Process Clause does not protect everything that might be described as a benefit. To have a property interest in a benefit, a person clearly must have more than an abstract need or desire and more than a unilateral expectation of it. He must instead have a legitimate claim of entitlement to it. Scalia concluded that Jessica Gonzalez was not entitled to police enforcement of the restraining order. He wrote, Our cases recognize that a benefit is not a protected entitlement if government officials may grant or deny it in their discretion. In the view of Scalia and the court, the 14th Amendment was not violated if making an arrest for violation of the restraining order was a matter of police discretion. So, the key question was whether Colorado law created a mandatory duty to arrest or whether the police still possessed a significant degree of discretion. The law provided a peace officer shall arrest or if an arrest would be impractical under the circumstances, seek a warrant for the arrest of a restrained person if probable cause exists that the restrained person has violated any provision of the restraining order. Jessica Gonzalez looked to language like a peace officer shall arrest and argued that this did not allow for officers to make a choice for themselves. But for Scalia, language that specified that a peace officer shall arrest was not the end of the story. He concluded, we do not believe that these provisions of Colorado law truly made enforcement of restraining orders mandatory. A well-established tradition of police discretion has long coexisted with apparently mandatory arrest statutes. The court's conclusion that the language of the statute still allowed the police discretion in enforcing the law meant that the 14th Amendment would not be used to penalize the city of Castle Rock for its officers in action. Scalia wrote, The creation of a personal entitlement to something as vague and novel as enforcement of restraining orders cannot simply go without saying, We conclude that Colorado has not created such an entitlement. 
With this conclusion, the court ruled that the due process clause would not protect Jessica Gonzalez. However, the court was not unanimous. Justice John Paul Stevens, joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, dissented. In their eyes, Jessica Gonzalez had put forth a compelling constitutional claim. Stevens wrote, Police enforcement of a restraining order is a government service that is no less concrete and no less valuable than other government services, such as education. The relative novelty of recognizing this type of property interest is explained by the relative novelty of the domestic violence statutes creating a mandatory arrest duty. In this case, Colorado law guaranteed the provision of a certain service in certain defined circumstances to a certain class of beneficiaries and respondent reasonably relied on that guarantee. According to Justice Stevens, Colorado law created a right possessed by Gonzalez and protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Stevens wrote, Because respondent had a property interest in the enforcement of the restraining order, state officials could not deprive her of that interest without observing fair procedures. Her description of the police behavior in this case and the department's callous policy of failing to respond properly to reports of restraining order violations clearly alleges a due process violation. This is an exceptionally difficult case. Our hearts break for Jessica Gonzalez. We want to find some sliver of justice for someone who has endured such pain. At the same time, we are mindful of the wisdom of the adage, not every problem has a constitutional solution. The challenge is determining whether the recognition of the legitimacy of Jessica Gonzalez's constitutional claim is a viable interpretation of the due process clause or an attempt to assuage the grief of someone who has endured what many of us would regard as unimaginable. However, the decision of the Supreme Court was not the end of the story. Having ruled that there was nothing in the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution that offered Gonzalez a remedy, Scalia then offered an alternative. If the people of Colorado wanted individuals who had suffered the loss experienced by those like Jessica Gonzalez to have legal recourse, they could create such a law themselves. Scalia wrote, Although the framers of the 14th Amendment did not create a system by which police departments are generally held financially accountable for crimes that better policing might have prevented, the people of Colorado are free to craft such a system under state law. This is the very thing that occurred across the country. Many state legislatures challenged by the Supreme Court to address this situation enacted mandates that required the police to take action in the face of domestic abuse and violation of orders of protection. While the system failed Jessica Gonzalez, 
Her case set into motion events that brought about legislative reform that would provide essential assistance to people in the circumstances faced by Jessica Gonzalez. There are some resources you might want to check out, including the Domestic Violence Resource Guide, which is produced by the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence and the Missouri Bar Young Lawyers section. That guide and other resources are available at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Nothing further. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2? podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.